Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all of our listeners, wherever you are on the planet. This is World Smart, a podcast of the Aaron Fox Law Firm. We are your hosts and Aaron Fox International Practice Group co-chairs. I'm Hunter Carter. And I'm Malcolm McNeil, and we'll be talking with partners, other lawyers, special guests about topics of interest in the law of international business and international business. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of World Smart, brought to you by Aaron Fox and my good friend and partner and colleague, Hunter Carter, and myself, Malcolm McNeil. And today, we are pleased and proud to have with us two of the seasoned and senior partners at the London law firm of Peters & Peters. For many of you, you may know Peters & Peters. They have made their mark primarily in substantial commercial litigation and also in the white-collar arena. And without any further or do, let me first say, Hunter, good to see you again, even though you're not seeing us on the podcast to the gang. But Hunter, how's everything going in New York? Hi, Malcolm. It's great to be here again. I'm glad you've uh, introduced uh, Michael and Keith to us. They're a couple of very fascinating lawyers, and there's some really topical material for us to, to talk about with them. So let's dive right in. Sounds great. Let me start with you, Keith. Keith and I have known each other for 30 years this year, I think, Keith, and I've watched your career and we've had a chance to collaborate. Uh, my my burning question for you, though, is over this last year, over the COVID experience, what has that done to the, uh, let's say, the white collar practice? And I know that you have a particular specialty in fraud recovery. I know that periodically I hear from you if you're in Dubai or in the Caribbean, in St. Lucia or the Barbados courts. Tell us what's happened from your end of things. What what the most interesting thing, Malcolm, is this, that although when the COVID pandemic started, huge sigh uh, and a belief, actually, the legal systems may come to a, a pretty abrupt end or at least suspension, very quickly, and this is we, you know, without being egocentric about it, the British like to think that we lead the world. No disrespect to you as our American friends and uh, and cousins, but but we believe that London is the centre of the legal universe as so far as international litigation is concerned. And yes, obviously you've got the uh, arbitrations that are effected through the New York conventions, but at the end of the day, London as a centre for worldwide litigation, which spawns various different satellite jurisdictions, the common law jurisdictions all over the world, very quickly moved with a complete procedural sea change to enable us as seamlessly as could possibly be done to move to virtual law, virtual hearings, virtual interlocutory hearings, and virtual trials that had never been done before. You in the US had always had in-camera hearings and judges dealing with telephone hearings and the like, but there'd never been a moment in the UK when you could move effectively to a complete virtual system of justice, not on the, the, the criminal side, but on the civil side, so that the commercial courts and the chancery courts immediately had judges sitting in their homes dealing with procedural hearings, with interlocutory hearings, and most importantly, with trial hearings, so that it was entirely seamless. And that was led both by the judiciary, by the profession, and by the government, because it was recognized that if you didn't have a functioning judicial and legal system, then very quickly, leaving aside what was happening with the pandemic, things would run into the ground. And it's a testament, I think, to our system that things have been as effective as they have 
the courts are operating completely normally and effectively. There have been some hearings now. It's beginning to open up. And I heard, in fact, today that there is a huge push now by the commercial judges to get back into court because judges are saying, in fact, we want to see witnesses. We want to have live hearings. Certainly procedurally, you might be still with things remotely. But when you're dealing with the determination of facts and honesty, dishonesty, factual determination, it has to be face to face. But actually, and Michael will confirm this, we have been busier than ever across our practice dealing with this, as have most of the litigation firms with whom we engage day in, day out. Uh, and that's, I think, to be uh, applauded. And it's been copied in every other jurisdiction. I do a lot of work with a, a well-known uh, QC um, who has a, a, a substantial British Virgin Island practice, which he now runs rather than flying backwards and forwards across the uh, Atlantic through Miami uh, or Antigua to get to the BVI from his home in Richmond, where he sits dealing with substantial hearings on a day in, day out basis. And that's a reflection of our system. So I think busier than ever. And we've shown ourselves to be at the centre. And Michael will talk about the uh, business crime area and the general crisis area in which he specialises. Thanks, Keith. I think uh, our experience on our side of the practice on the criminal side is a bit of a different because obviously the big difference is we need juries and it's very, very difficult to get you know 12 people in a room, socially distanced, in a courtroom with all the lawyers, all the press and the staff. So when the pandemic hit, that was a real issue in terms of jury trials. So custody cases were prioritised, but what tended to happen was even those cases were getting put back. Remand hearings, preliminary hearings, administrative hearings were all being done, as Keith said, online very effectively. And pausing there for a moment, I suspect now that things start to get back to normal, we may, this may be one of the legacies of the pandemic, is that many, many more of those kind of hearings are still going to be dealt with remotely. But what um, what what happened was that um, it wasn't really a priority for the government, criminal trials, sorting out space for criminal trials, particularly for people who were on bail, because obviously the government had other priorities trying to try to stop all the deaths and, and deal with PPE and trying to create a, a vaccine and, and get it dispensed, etc. So we already started at the beginning of the pandemic with a backlog in this country of 36,000 criminal trials. That's now grown to over 60,000 criminal trials, despite the best efforts of the government now to try to use municipal buildings instead of just using courtrooms. But so every trial at the moment, they, if you take the sort of central criminal court, the old Bailey, every trial needs two courtrooms. Uh, because you've got to have, you know, a jury in another room, or you've got to have um, juries deliberating in another room, and so that is very significant logistical challenge. I was laughing with a client of mine because just before the the lockdown came, we were coming to the end of a five month criminal case being brought by the Serious Fraud Office against senior executives from Barclays Bank. In fact, the trial involves the CEO of Barclays Global, the only CEO in the world to be prosecuted as a consequence of allegations arising out of the 2008 financial crisis. And we made the decision that our client would not give evidence. Had our client got into the witness box and given evidence, he would have been in the witness box when we had a lockdown. And so God knows how long it would have taken for that trial to have finished if the trial hadn't itself actually ended up being aborted and having to start all over again. 
So he was gloriously acquitted, as were the other two defendants, thankfully, but uh, the timing of that was was very helpful. But I think it's going to be a real challenge. It's going to be a real challenge for many months, uh, if not years, to try to clear extremely significant backlog. One other thing I just want to say in terms of that's the process. In terms of enforcement, and I don't know how this has worked in the United States, in terms of investigations, it's also very clear that serious fraud office and other enforcement agencies essentially just press the pause button on their investigations if they could. So any interviews that they were going to conduct, they just kicked them into the long grass. Any any enforcement action they were going to take got kicked into the long grass. So it appeared as though you know the world stopped and enforcement and investigations also stopped. Whether you know time will tell that was a good thing, whether anything could be done differently whether an already an SFO that has already faced something of a checkered history in recent years became even, you know, things became even more problematic for it. Again, let's wait and see, but it doesn't look too healthy. Michael, this is Hunter. Um, you know, it's interesting when you're mentioning the SFO. I, I have had a conversation or two recently about the SFO. I'm doing some teaching at a law school in Lima to graduate law students on compliance and we're sort of thinking through the various tools and methods that the law provides for where are they. In fact, uh, we've done a podcast with Jose Ugas, uh, former president of Transparency International uh, from Lima, Peru, and Valfiro Vargi from uh, uh, Sao Paulo, um, who have differing but complementary views uh, on just those subjects. But about the SFO, I think it had escaped my attention the degree to which it had not really been um, very successful in its prosecutions of corruption crimes. So much attention is paid to the U.S. DOJ and its prosecution or non-prosecution agreements, largely these days, with businesses and the emphasis on formalizing charges against individuals. But tell our listeners a little bit about the SFO and how it compares to the DOJ and the SEC in terms of its track record in reaching either prosecution agreements or convictions. Okay, well, that's a big question. And we have experience of dealing with uh, both the SFO and the and with the U.S. Department of Justice. And I'd never dealt with the U.S. Department of Justice until 2006. So that was the first time. And what I was doing then was the first thing I did, done many things since, was trying to bring a client into the DOJ and get that client immunity from prosecution. Somebody who was involved in what the allegations were, was pretty central to the allegations, but was relatively junior in the organization and had evidence to give against those who were much more senior. Very credible, compelling evidence. Now, there was a process. We had the Queen for a Day letter. We went over and we did a proffer. We told them what the client would say if he was interviewed. We said if if he tells you what we say he's going to say, you guys are going to be interested. Yes. Will you give us an indication if you will immunize him? Yes. We sat around the table. It was a very adult, grown-up conversation. There was a lot of imagination, and it was very, very welcome. That process contrasts hugely with what would have been possible at that time in the United Kingdom, where prosecutors tend to be much more risk-averse. They don't want to be as imaginative. And there wasn't the legal framework to be able to engage in that sort of dialogue or those sorts of discussions. Needless to say, the U.S. experience, we were very fortunate the client was ultimately immunized, and we've done similar things subsequently. But that experience really drilled home to me how the flexibility within the U.S. system 
of being able to, to reach arrangements like that does give the U.S. Department of Justice and other U.S. law enforcement agencies significant muscle when it comes to trying to bring to book and bring to heel those who are most senior and most responsible in respect of allegations of criminality. Now, coming back to your question, Hunter, so the SFO obviously wouldn't have been able to do that then. Now what we have is a situation, in fact, it's a U.S. import, uh, which is this deferred prosecution uh, uh, arrangement and the, the, the Bribery Act, which is 10 years old this year. So what's happened is the SFO has started to engage in a number of deferred prosecution agreements with corporates. And it's interesting what's happened with that because it does go against our culture, which is as prosecutors, you prosecute. You don't do deals with corporates where they pay a fine and they clean up their act and then they essentially get off scot-free. It kind of goes against you know, decades and centuries of legal instinct. So this is something that the current director of the SFO, Lisa Rozovsky, who's also a, a U.S. import, you gave us Lisa, we gave you Harry and Meghan, so it's a fair trade. Um, uh, she's very keen on trying to promote the sort of the DPAs uh, as a way of, of ensuring enforcement. And, and the jury is out as to whether they're successful or not. I'll tell you one of the main reasons why. Since the DPA was introduced into the UK, there have been the prosecution of 11 separate individuals who were involved in the alleged criminality. And every single one of those individuals has been acquitted. Now, there were different reasons for different cases, but the, 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 the mood music and the sense is that sometimes corporates do a DPA to get it dealt with, to get it, get the get the fine booked in their year accounts, move on, pressure from shareholders, put it behind us and get on. So there may be an agreement around a factual basis, which may not necessarily be supported by the underlying evidence. So when the when the prosecutors say, well, the companies agreed to those facts, let's go after the guy, the, 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 the individuals who were engaged in that conduct, the cases don't get proved. And so this is something that I think the SFO has really struggled with. It's really struggled with this over the last few years. And the other thing I think that possibly they've done a bit wrong is they've gone after these big marquee cases like Barclays, when perhaps what they should be doing is building up very significant trial and case experience from the more kind of middle-ranking defendants, whether they are corporate or whether they are an individual. So there's a, I mean, there's a lot wrong, I think, with the U.S. justice system. I mean, there's a lot wrong with it. We could talk about that for hours. I think you know, disclosure, getting to know what the case is against your client well in advance of a trial, those sort of things don't seem to happen in the United States in the way that they happen here. And what do you, what you do about unused material, I mean, a Brady material, you, you call it in the United States. So that's all much more regimented and much more easily accessible here. But from an overall point of view, if you're wanting to try to target corruption, global corruption, the U.S. Department of Justice is the only enforcement agency in the world that is feared. And that's a problem. Well, that's quite an answer, and it convinces me that we've got to organize a seminar for ourselves, for our clients, for the bar, perhaps. We'll invite Walfredo and Jose. Um, I'll leave you with this thought and turn it over to, my, to Malcolm, but uh, there are some good books out there, and I'll send you a few recommendations uh, that, that have attracted my attention that, that deal with this notion of how do you, how should you police corporate crime? You know, in the U.S., when they got too aggressive with Arthur Anderson at, at the time of the Enron scandal, it led to the death of the corporation. 
question, was the death penalty merely as a result of the indictment um, before any fact was proven, before any defense was tried, was that death penalty warranted? Was the, was the termination of the employment of all of those employees and was the effect on all the other vendors and stakeholders of the corporate world of that enterprise worth it in that case? We'll never know because the trial didn't happen. On the other hand, in the U.S., cases like Petrotiger, which is a Columbia uh, entity that was uh, the subject of a, of a U.S. prosecution called Siegel. He was the CEO of the company. His GC and a company uh, and a country manager both took plea agreements, and the GC even wore a, a video cufflinks to have a surreptitious conversation with the GC. This is after the fact about whether or not there had been a bribe paid to a former employee of the state uh, uh, petroleum company, Ecopetrol, in Colombia. And Siegelman said, I'm not making an agreement. I'm, I'm going to trial. And they actually did a good job at really hurting the witnesses. But what, what was the case? The case against him was that a guy sitting in jail in Bogota received a bribe and was blaming him and had never met him. It was only dealing through intermediaries. Or his general counsel, who he characterized as faithless and as a bad witness, you know, so the trial evidence wasn't so great, but in the U.S. we don't see trials very much. There are there are individual prosecution trials for sure, and the Department of Justice takes them well. But one can look at the Odebrecht plea agreement, for example, and see now in the bright light of day how much evidence isn't in there about the supposed scheme of corruption, evidence of other crimes that have come forward, and how much of what is in there actually isn't a crime or supported by good evidence. So. Um, I think defense lawyers are all saying to themselves, when we can, we're going to push back harder. But until then, we have to protect the, the thriving enterprise. And if that means reforming it, punishing people, changing a business name, paying a fine and, and moving forward, that seems to be the best, if not optimal, way to deal with policing corporate crime. Anyway, Malcolm, over to you. We've had a great conversation with well, Michael. <laughs> well, well, exactly. Uh, well, I want to turn back to Keith for a second, because when Keith was talking a little earlier, uh, the he was focusing his attention on how the, and, and Michael too, on how the English courts have dealt with the pandemic and all of that. I wanted to go back to the international focus for a moment, Keith, because I do know that you traveled. I knew last January when I saw you, you had a matter coming up in Dubai. It was requiring you to go there. I, I was more on concerned on a practical end, how did your practice change? And did you find any jurisdictions particularly troublesome if you were trying to engage in fraud recovery, uh, you know, asset recovery in given jurisdictions? I, I think it's quite, quite difficult to talk about ongoing public matters, but I, I'll tell you what is a huge challenge and nobody has an answer to this. We all know the work that we do, the best and most effective way of taking instructions is face-to-face whether you're preparing witness statements or, or pleadings and you're back specific, sitting down with people, analyzing, considering even this, you know, somebody asks a question, you don't immediately respond, you think about the answer. And in circumstances where certainly at the moment, and particularly with the, the government's approach to, approach to international travel, it's almost impossible to go anywhere other than for an extreme purpose. Uh, and it will take some time before things get relatively back to normal, if they ever do. And the reason I say, uh, and I'm concern concerned about this, is that clients will now say, well, we don't need to meet face-to-face. -face. I can give you instructions. I can sit with you at the end of a Zoom call for two or three hours. You can take a witness statement. 
uh, and the like. You can prepare the case. We don't have to expend the cost of sitting down and all the traveling time associated with it. And I think that is a really retrograde step because the responsibility that we all carry for defending our clients and representing their their interests, whatever the legal challenges are, are best addressed by doing so face to face. And I think it's incumbent upon us all at a very senior level to be creative cost-wise in relation to what you say to individuals and to corporations. Don't charge every pound or, or dollar for every moment of traveling time, but say, look, the issues here are so difficult, so sensitive. Let's meet. We'll do it cheaply. We'll do it effectively. We have to find a way to do to do that in the way that we used to, rather than individuals being able to say to you and GC saying, well, too expensive. We can have an hour-long call, deal with the issues, because what you'll finally get to is the commoditizing of legal practice. And I think that will be a huge mistake down the line. And on your point, Malcolm, I think that uh, certainly in terms of not only business development, but actually working with overseas lawyers, you want to do it face-to-face. You want to be able to engage and spend time together and deal with, with clients' problems in that way. And so you pay lip service to it by trying to do it on a virtual basis, however good the technology is. Until and unless we have, and maybe it'll come, not necessarily in my lifetime, and have a, a Malcolm McNeil or a Hunter Carter avatar sitting uh, with us like Sigourney Weaver in our in our meeting room and participating as if it is real live person uh, in action, then I think you have to get back to meeting people. I mean, I've had a we've it's interesting. The um, you remember um, I am legend with Will Smith when he drives around yeah. uh, a deserted Manhattan with his his dog while all the crazies are trying to get hold of him. Well, London over the last year has been like that. I mean, it's been a wasteland. We are in the center of the legal community here, and there are massive office blocks having a huge interesting discussions at partner level about office space, and many firms I know are grappling with this, and people coming back. You can wander around the New Street Square, and Malcolm, you know where our office is, right in the center of the legal community. Lights are off everywhere, very few people out in the streets. It's beginning to come back, and I think you have to get back to proper engagement. And I think personally, it takes leaders like each on this podcast uh, to spread the word that we have to get back to meeting people face to face and not working on a, a sort of part time legal basis, because the law is not part time. It's not as if you say, well, I only have to apply, you know, 20 or 30 percent of my time dealing with legal issues of a client, particularly in the global world. It's 24 seven. And you have to be able to lead and say to your younger lawyers and teach them and engage with them, that you have to be available for your client base. And this sounds like a sales pitch. It's not intended as such. 24-7. And that's the key to legal practice. And if you don't enjoy it, then, you know, we're both lucky because we enjoy what we do. So it's a bit of a monologue. Don't know if that answers your question or not, Malcolm. Keith, you have uh, escaped the answering of the question, and which is fine. But let me know. That, that was a great answer. Thank you. I want to go back to um, Michael but, for a second. Malcolm, before you go on, you got to let me in here because Keith, okay, sure, if, sure. I shudder to think we, one Malcolm is enough, but an avatar of Malcolm, universal <laughs> anywhere. This is concerning to me. <laughs> well, we'll have that discussion offline, Hunter. How's that? <laughs> I think Hunter's worried that there won't be an avatar of him. That's really what's going on. I think a lot of people should be worried if there were such a one. I agree with you, though, Keith. It's not only personal, but cultural. I deal a lot with the, the Andes, the countries of South America and Central America. And it is one thing to be able to see someone on the phone and get through the minimum of trading words and communicating uh, virtually or otherwise. 
But cultural knowledge is everything to understand what's being said and done. Indeed. Well, we, we uh, as Malcolm said, a good deal of work we have done in the UAE. So not only in the DIFC of, of Dubai, but in the surrounding area. And Michael's been heavily involved in cases we've done down in Abu Dhabi as well. And dealing with, as you say, that culture is quite different. It, people sit and they have long discussions over coffee and they may not actually in our terms discuss very much. But you have to learn to be patient and you have to learn to be respectful of that culture and engage with them for the purpose of giving effect to what they want to achieve. And I think it's very hard to do it without that patience. And you cannot accelerate it by trying to prepare cases in this uh, rather unsatisfactory way. I fully agree with that only because, first of all, there is a distinction, of course, between our meeting with clients and having known clients. And for example, us having this kind of a dialogue, having known each other for many years, certainly on the business development end and getting to know your client and the client getting to know you and to trust you and to give you the information that they need to give you with a, in an atmosphere of trust. It is more challenging. Uh, I, As you know, I do a lot of work on the Asia side of things and been doing a lot of inbound Chinese work. And we had a trade secret case recently. We couldn't get witnesses to come from China for obvious reasons. And that was making the case more challenging to try and set up calls and discussions. And there was a natural reluctance to trade information electronically. So I think that's uh, hopefully some of that reluctance will go away, but there's nothing like the face-to-face when you're trying to develop trust with a witness. What I was going to turn to you uh, earlier on, Michael, was asking, you gave us interesting statistics and facts regarding the SFO. Have any trends emerged in terms of, say, prosecutions and what the focus is from the SFO or in general? What are the authorities worried about or working on or trying to be aggressive about? Well, I think you know what happens in the United Kingdom is often a consequence of what happens in the United States in terms of trend. That might not be so much of a surprise. And it's quite, you know, for a trend, you need to have cases and there just haven't been enough to be able to establish any kind of pattern over the last few years. But what I would say is a trend in terms of policy is trying to use different tools to tackle corruption. So, and again, this follows on from the United States and from Canada. So, you know, just under a month ago in the United Kingdom, we introduced international sanctions for corruption against 22 individuals, the Russians and some others from different jurisdictions. During the COVID year in 2020, in the summer, we introduced human rights sanctions. These are sanctions regimes that have already been passed in Washington for some years. And you've got these kingpin sanctions as well. You can go after um, cartelists, drug cartelists and the like. And Canada has got human rights and corruption sanctions too. The European Union passed human rights sanctions just before Christmas and has added a lot of people to that list. A lot of them in relation to the military coup in recently in Myanmar. And I think with President Biden now in the White House, he seems to be saying that as far as enforcement policy is concerned and his people are saying, they really want to put anti-corruption measures front and center and global anti-corruption measures. You've seen something of that in the last couple of weeks in relation to what they're trying to do on tax with the G7 economy ministers all trying to reach this agreement on what the global corporate tax rate should be. That desire, that motivation comes from the same place. We've got to try and tackle unfairness, try to raise more revenue. We're, you know, we've spent a huge amount of money. It's been like being at war against this virus. We've got to get more money back into the economy. And tackling corruption is one way of doing that. And I also think as a trend, the corruption aspect is about really trying to go after kleptocracy. So President Biden, he's very strong on Putin. He's very strong on Russia. He's going to see Putin in Geneva in a few days' time. 
He's very clear about what he's going to be saying to him. And it seems from where we sit that the administration in Washington is now going to be looking at how the enablers of kleptocracy can be targeted as well. And that means law firms and accountancy firms and banks and the city of London and New York. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see to what extent they ramp up enforcement. And it's going to be good. Obviously, it's going to be good for, for white-collar crime lawyers because there's going to be more work in that sense. But just the final comment on, on what I'm saying is it does seem to me as though this sort of corruption sanctions, you know, a lot of people laud it for you know, targeting bad people and freezing their bank accounts, etc. But there is an absence of due process there because there are tried and tested methods here. We know them very well for the British authorities to liaise and cooperate with the Americans and the Canadians. If you identify bad people, you've got the evidence, you can freeze their accounts. Keith knows this only too well. You can go after bad people, you can freeze their accounts, you can get the money back, you can prosecute them if you have the evidence. This structure of corruption sanctions appears to bypass all of that. It's like an easy way of getting bad people to have their assets frozen. And there is little redress for those people. And I'm curious as to why we're bypassing tried and tested methodology in international criminal justice. It's as if we're perhaps recognizing that it's just too difficult to cross borders and cross boundaries using the methodology of the past. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out in the future. And part of that difficulty, obviously, is cost for many. If everything is frozen, we our Department of Justice uses that as a good tool to basically force resolutions. And those resolutions get forced as a result of financial consideration. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, you take one example was, you know, if you take the 1MDB case. So, you know, it's a sprawling investigation. The U.S. Department of Justice investigation was run out of Los Angeles and it was run out of New York. And, you know, they went after many, many individuals. They went after film companies. They went after Goldman Sachs. I mean, it's stepping back and just looking at it from a, you know, taking a helicopter view. It's it's been an extremely impressive piece of work by a combination of U.S. law enforcement teams to be able to get the deals that they did to recover the monies that they have recovered, despite a very significant series of political obstacles that would have been in their way. Indeed. Hunter, I'm looking at the time. I think we're doing pretty well, but we're near the end. Would you like to add another question or two? Well, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, for both Michael and Keith, the question that occurs to me listening to this conversation is how do all these tools, however well-intentioned, whatever their either significant background of experience or relative novelty may be, how much can they create problems that are unintended consequences? So let me give you the example that's bothering me these days, which is that lots and lots of the bad effects of COVID are being concentrated in their economic effect in South America. So South American countries, Brazil, Mexico, primarily in Central America, obviously, that very badly hit by the epidemic, but the, actually the per capita worst place on the planet is Peru. And Peru is an economic engine of the Andes. It's a, been a, a really wonderful story for many years. It's in absolute political chaos. They have a presidential election that's split by less than 16,000 votes with 300,000 votes being challenged, a far left versus a far right candidate. If you can put those terms there, I, I don't think they fit that well, but people do. And so there's capital flight for all those reasons out of those countries, people with capital and, and funds 
see the economic ruin and the political instability, the violence in the streets in Santiago and in Bogota and Cali, and they think, let's invest in good investments. And in the U.S., for example, we have good inbound real estate investments, for example, and so the capital flees. But there are lots of barriers to those kinds of investments. You have, you know, you know your customer kinds of investments. You have firms in the U.S. are not willing to deal with unmanaged individual investors, uh, except on a rare basis. We have new transparency disclosures. And of course, you mentioned, Michael, the G7 is thinking about and endorsed the idea, not only of a global tax regime, but at the same time, they also endorsed the idea of beneficial ownership registries. And so I ask both of you, to what extent are you seeing your clients who are caught up in legal problems, who are actually involved in what seem to be ordinary business activity, at least within the sort of reasonableness framework of the window they were operating in, and that these well-intentioned regimes are creating undue burdens? Well, I think there's a sort of the way in which certain countries operate creates a presumption that if you're from that country, you're crooked. So I think there is a presumption, for example, there's no such thing as clean Russian money. I don't think that's true. Or there's no such thing as you know clean money from China. I don't think that's true. So as a consequence of the law enforcement we've been talking about, primarily coming out of the United States, banks and compliance departments of banks They're like rabbits in a garden. They're on a state of constant alert. So they're always looking over their shoulder. If something's going to come, we're going to run away. And that means that people who are trying to do legitimate business are really, really struggling. Now, we've been in practice. Keith and I have practiced in this this firm for a long time. And this firm's been going since 1938. Up until a few years ago, I hadn't had a client in this firm. And we represent people who are being investigated for fraud. I hadn't had a client that have a bank account closed. Now it happens once a month. So we spend a lot of our time now advocating on behalf of our clients to compliance departments and banks to say, you know, don't close the account. Or if you're closing the account, reconsider it, or you're breaching your contractual obligations, or whatever it might be. We're producing independent reports from extremely experienced senior former law enforcement officials or former directors of public prosecutions or whatever it might be to say, look, they've pulled up the drains on this guy. There's absolutely nothing to suggest that anything he owns has ever been tainted in any way by any illegal activity. This is where all the fun and banks are still too nervous to take them on as clients. And that is, and I and I was always being rather cynical about it. I think, oh yeah, but just wait till I get a really, really, really rich guy, like a mega billionaire. Sure, the banks will turn a blind eye. Well, my experience so far is they won't. Even with them, they're going, oh my God. And we've seen with you know so many of the recent scandals, you know, whether it's Wirecard, which is primarily homed in, in Germany or there's a green investigation into Greensill here now in, in the UK, which covers across into Europe and Credit Suisse and into Australia. You know, despite everything that I'm saying, in relation to certain companies and certain activities, blind eyes do seem to be being turned. And there's a modus operandi that seems to be being undertaken by the more sophisticated individuals, which allows them to get past the system. And I, we, we're going to run out of time, but I can, you know, I can walk through what I think that modus operandi is because it appears to be really quite successful. And it involves buying influence, political influence, buying enforcement influence, mm-hmm. getting an ex-enforcer who's got relationships with current enforcers to persuade them these people are good people to be trusted, building a network of trust, of trust, of trust, even though that network is supporting what is an absolutely fundamental fraud. And so even with, I mean, if you take the Wirecard example, even when the Financial Times journalists are drawing it to the attention of the regulators, it's the Financial Times journalists who end up being the subject of criminal investigation. 
for a time before the fraud is finally discovered. I mean, quite extraordinary. I wonder if I can go on a slight tangent, conscious of time. And again, thank you both very much for the for the opportunity. But as a, a further engagement with us, if we pass the litmus test on this one, something that it might be very interesting to talk about on the next, uh, the next event is the impact of cryptocurrency and how on earth this entirely new virtual world that operates outside any real effective regulatory regime or control is going to impact upon our clients' lives and in terms of how all of us have to be not only savvy in terms of with the technology, but how, in fact, the legal systems developed over centuries suddenly confronted with the ability to move assets and money in this virtual space without any joined up legal systems are ever going to be able to deal with this effectively. Because I think that's one of the huge challenges that all of us are going to face over the next few years. And we're just actually skimming the surface at the moment. But that's that's a subject for a huge discussion. Uh, I'm just going to say I attended a symposium here on exactly that topic, and apparently the world tax regimes have uh, a lot of disagreements over tax issues, but they have a unanimity on the idea that they want to have a unified system of disclosure, etc. They all know what they want to do, but they don't know what to do in terms of making sure there's going to be accountability, because obviously if there's accountability from a tax standpoint and from a disclosure standpoint, point, uh, then uh, that makes it a lot easier for the enforcement. But the question is, what about the subterranean folks who are not doing that, that are not in state? But when Sir Tim Berners-Lee wrote the code that underpins the whole of the internet, a decision that was taken was not to charge for the use of it. And maybe in time, people will look back at that and think that was a pivotal moment of how we ended up where we are with the Wild West out there without any real regulatory control so far as the moving particularly of crypto is concerned and how you ever track that. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this and advising clients suddenly facing massive losses because somebody, at least in good faith, uh, has dealt with transactions that have dissipated into the ether. On, on crypto, this week we saw something radical. We always thought that cryptocurrencies couldn't be traced. And the uh, pipeline that went down in the in the United States um, and whose operators paid a ransomware in order to get it back functioning, they paid it in Bitcoin. And it turns out that the government reached into the wallet where those Bitcoin were sent and pulled them all back. Doing something that until now had been thought impossible. The same week in which it was reported that U.S., Australian and European authorities were able to distribute encrypted phones that criminal organizations used, thinking they were on an encrypted app, to trade pictures of cocaine-laden pineapples. And so it turned out that the tools of law enforcement are much stronger than people thought, and maybe some of these transformational technologies won't be so upsetting. Okay, two things. Um, that uh, it's the English courts, you know, flag flying inevitably for, for, for the British, who have developed this concept of making worldwide orders, amazingly, against persons or persons unknown, worldwide disclosure orders for the purpose of tracing crypto. Uh, well, first of all, let me say it's been a fascinating conversation on all fronts. And I want to thank my dear friend Keith Oliver for helping to participate and bring in Michael O'Kane, his partner at Peters & Peters, uh, obviously a prestigious firm in the city in London. And I thank 
thank you both for joining Hunter and I uh, for this discussion on COVID uh, and its impact on white collar crime and related topics. So gentlemen, I look forward to uh, perhaps we'll follow up on this at a future podcast and we would invite you back.